This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Pleasure to be here tonight. I, um, when I was an undergrad at Stanford uh, a little more than 15 years ago, I uh, had the pleasure of studying with Shyla at that time, and she's an inspiring practitioner, yogini, and uh, teacher. So it's great to be in a community that's um, gathered around and with her in practice. Maybe I'll just say a little bit about who I am by way of introducing myself. I'm Director of Education at the Stanford Compassion Center. We're part of the medical school at Stanford, and more specifically neuroscience, and more specifically neuroinnovation. And my training on the academic front is uh, I have a PhD in um, Buddhist theology and education. My dissertation work was on the secular application of compassion meditation. And I do, I'm also a clinical social worker, so I'm passionate about bringing meditation practices to communities of need. I've worked a lot with refugees. I'm currently doing work with veterans with residential PTSD unit at the VA in uh, Palo Alto. So I'm very passionate about engagement with practice and human need of all, of all types. And my practice background, I've been training in a Tibetan Buddhist tradition, Kagyon Nyingma, and spent number of years doing three six-month retreats and as part of the tradition I've been teaching getting old now maybe seven ten years something like that and uh, founded a nonprofit with John McCransky in the Boston area which is now pretty much national we do work bringing secularized adaptations of Tibetan practice into communities of caregivers interreligious activists that kind of thing so um what I want to talk about tonight is compassion meditation, and I really want to focus on experience. So what I wanted to do during this initial meditation was bridge what probably is a more familiar sitting practice, more of an awareness, mindfulness, settling the mind kind of practice. And, and I brought in a, a compassion visualization meditation that comes directly out of the Tibetan tradition, out of the Lojong Bodhicitta practices that's correlated. All the different schools of Tibetan Buddhism have different angles on this work, but they all have this work, which is interesting because there's a lot of variance even among Tibetan Buddhism, and they all have this type of practice. Different commentary on it, but it's a heart piece of each of these traditions. So I thought maybe what I'll do is just describe the practice I guided, because I know it's you know the end of the day and there's a lot of steps to this and it might be unfamiliar, so maybe it's helpful to just summarize what we did. So what I, I led was in the beginning of the meditation, the three deep breaths come out of the Tibetan yogic tradition of settling the breath, settling the mind, and um, getting out of our heads into our bodies. And from there, we did the three naturals, the, the tra natural body. So just a, shifting the sense of gripping onto the body and just letting the body be and embody us. Natural breath is a second natural. So letting the shift to being breathed from having to be a person who's doing the breathing. So natural breath, natural body, natural breath. And then these two open the way for natural mind. So 
the mind after you've gone through this process of settling the body, settling the breath, then allowing the thinking process to be. And it's really an awareness practice. If any of you had your eyes open, you probably noticed that my eyes were open. In the Tibetan tradition, that's con- we practice with our eyes open often when we're doing an awareness practice. So rather than closing and focusing inwards, it's more of a posture of opening and just as we allow the senses like sound to arise and we don't block it. The same with sight. So it's just a different thing to experiment with. If you haven't tried that before, it can be especially powerful to do it outdoors in nature. You know, if you've gone for a hike or you're in some sort of a setting and you just sit down and just let your mind relax and have your gaze open. And it comes out of the Tibetan sky gazing tradition. So in Tibet, you know, a lot of yogis up in caves with vast views. So that's kind of taking the visual metaphor of vastness and and using that to tune into the vastness of our own mind. So I kind of did a little bit of a Tibetan spin on the opening awareness practice. And then what I did was invited you to bring to mind a benefactor or compassionate image and to use that image as a way to really get in touch with the actual experience of receiving compassion and then working with receiving it into the body, into a specific concern and engaging with that and then allowing that to receive directly into the sense of an, almost an existential sense of separateness. That's something that can be received into and then just dropping from there and going back into an open awareness process and seeing How was that perhaps impacted from doing this work with the benefactor? So that's the pattern, and that's a very common one of doing an awareness practice, working with a benefactor, and then dropping into the back into awareness mindfulness practice. And before, there's so much I could talk about, but I think maybe more interesting would be to just stop at this point and see if anyone has any observations or anything that stood out about that experience or points of clarification about that practice. And then maybe out of there we can get into some other sort of background about compassion meditation and how does that fit in with mindfulness, with self-compassion. But how was that practice? Was that brand new? Did it Was it familiar to other practices, perhaps of metta that you've maybe encountered? Was it helpful? Was it shenanigans, anything, welcome. Yes, Jennifer, thank you. Um, it, it felt familiar to me for, uh, in the metta practice that we have done um, and that I've, I've done um, not too often but occasionally. And what I found is that my I was thinking about who is this perfect benefactor and mm-hmm. I kept moving from person to person. Oh, well... Oh, but that's a little complicated. And, uh-huh. uh, well, yeah, I have these other feelings about that person, and so um, so I, I was able to keep going back, and I kept trying. Mm-hmm. But I did find also that I was thinking about um, the kind of the real relationships as opposed to the ideal of a benefactor and the ideal of compassion. Perfect. <laughs> that that dynamic is a great entry into several important parts of it. The first is, does a benefactor need to be a perfect person to be able to do this practice? So if I pick the old woman from down the street, 
I don't know, maybe she was a little sketchy with her husband. Maybe she was rude to him. Can she actually be my benefactor? Or maybe I should pick the Dalai Lama, but I don't know him that well, and maybe I don't like his stance on this political... I'm making up, but, you know, the people have political issues, or maybe I pick someone, but I could pick someone better. So all of this becomes something that uh, is part of the practice. So just, I mean, there's several things to say about it. First of all, just like mindfulness practice, when we start focusing on the breath, the mind taking off to do anything else but stay on the breath is absolutely essential and core to mindfulness training. So similarly, looking at the patterns of complexity and resistance that we have with picking a figure is immensely valuable. And it's something that, like, if this is a practice someone takes up and works with over time, you kind of get into finding someone that you can start with. And, and actually, for a lot of people, it ends up being a pet is just a very simple figure. Like, that golden retriever, you know, is not... It, so for a lot of people, that can be the way in or a symbol. But that that's a very common experience. And one of the things that people tend to do is pick a should person. So like, oh, I really should pick my mom or I should pick my partner or my child. But actually, those relationships might be really complicated and fertile, but complicated and not the best ones necessarily to start with. So it can be picking someone who's a little bit more removed. The way one of my teachers talks about it is like, a good person to pick is someone that you like to be around, like that person that when the time ends that you're hanging out, you're wishing it was a little longer, like that impulse to be with them in a positive way. Of course, there's negative people we're drawn towards, and that's a whole other issue. Yes, over there. A symbol. Okay, so um, for a Christian person, it could be a crucifix. I've had um, Jewish people talk about an orb of light being something that they really resonate with rather than a, a person. Or a tree, you know, that's something I've heard people talk about, like a huge redwood tree. It just feels very grounding. Like that kind of relationship to nature is the way that some people can tune into compassion. Yeah. I thought that this uh, benefit, or, um, the, the symbol was an idea, a way to initiate self-compassion. In other words, we're bringing something to the mind as a way to free up the ability to provide self-compassion for ourselves, to model that, and then that enables us then later in the practice to extend that out. Beautiful. That's that's. Yeah, that's exactly the direction this goes in. And one, I had a couple bullet points I was going to talk about. And one of them was, what is this relationship between receiving compassion, self-compassion, and offering compassion? And, that, and that's a beautiful expression that you just shared of how this receiving compassion then can go into extending it. And, and one of those kinds of settings I really like to work with this kind of practice in is with healthcare providers or people who are struggling with compassion, fatigue, burnout, secondary trauma, all different synonyms. And we work with this practice and people, you know, talk about how replenishing it feels because they're, and I think all of us, even people who are not in any professional helping situation, we're all helping caregiving for someone, a parent, a child, a friend, somebody, ourself. And um, this feeling of giving and giving leading to burning out, this, this motion of receiving is, is directly related to the capacity to continue giving. But there's some very interesting things, like how many people in this room would agree that it's easier to offer compassion than to receive it? 
that's a common, that's really common we teach. Yeah, so this is like a lot of people feel this way. So that's interesting, right? What is it about receiving compassion from somebody else or wishing it for ourselves? So a next step to the process we just did tonight could be is one one more time if we retreat if we're going to do another session the next step might be now while you're receiving join that compassionate image and wishing this for yourself so you get to try that on you're not just receiving but you're joining and whoa that's a new one for a lot of people and you know is that selfish is this focus on myself you know these kinds of questions emerge so i'll I'll let you guys ask those questions but yes yeah please then the question is, isn't that reinforcing a sense of separate self? And, and sort of isolating ourselves from sort of the compassion that we are supposed to be giving out? Right. So that's, I mean, I think that that's, from a logical perspective, we could see that that would come up. If I'm focusing on myself, how is that related to extending compassion. One of the things I really like about starting with the practice, which is a privilege to do here in some settings, I have to kind of yap first and then get people ready to, okay, are you ready to try a practice? But here we could just practice. So the self-compassion follows on the receiving compassion. So it's not, the initial source is the the compassionate image and opening to that and then joining that and then then the next step would be filling up and and extending it in widening circles and you can do widening circles either geographically that's one traditional way or working with people who are close to us strangers difficult people so the thing i think that's very interesting is it all the movement is like filling up and then extending and you can imagine then that if so much of the caregiving in our training those of us who are trained as clinical this or that it's the focus is on giving and it's no wonder i mean even with teachers the giving of attention without a focus on replenishing and and where is that constant giving supposed to to come from if there's not a source to receive from and i think there's i'm not trying to say this is the cure all practice you know certainly having mindful present moment experience can be a a source of deep replenishment. I'm not trying to say this kind of practice is the only way in there, but it's another way into it. We'll do more questions later, but maybe I'll talk a little bit more about what is compassion? Maybe we should start as a question. How, how would you define compassion? And you can throw the Buddhist definition out, but how would you yourself define compassion? So it's something that you know in your bones when you feel it. It's a human sort of experience that we all have access to. That's interesting, that you can make some decision about it. Mm-hmm. And it might be a conscious decision or an unconscious decision of like maybe just overwhelmed or I don't have time right now or that person is in a box. They Maybe they deserve their suffering in some way or I just can't engage with it. You know, so all the different kind of categories of people some deserve or we have time for or we don't notice. You know, whatever the boxes are. Extremely rich people's suffering can't be as significant as a, a concrete level of suffering, you know, that kind of judgment. Or this per- political party person might not be worthy of compassion or someone who's com- an emotional shutting down. So, yeah. Much deeper than just talking about a simple uh, uh, excitement along a nerve path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something more comprehensive than that. Great. No, that's very helpful. Other other ideas about compassion or when compassion? Yeah, please. Unconditional acceptance. Great. So 
maybe I'll throw out some definitions, not by way of ending it, but just to have more stuff to work with. So one simple Buddhist definition of compassion is the desire to alleviate suffering. And loving kindness would be the desire for happiness. So the compassion is something to do from a Buddhist perspective, Buddhist psychology would be the compassion is engaging with the suffering, whereas loving kindness is promoting the positive affect, the, the happiness. Another element, another way of parsing it would be at C-Care, we often talk about a four-step kind of process. So the first is awareness of suffering, so we have to notice it. Then there's an emotional resonance with that suffering, so we're feeling with it. And that's the step that's like empathy, but empathy could be towards something positive or negative. Here it's empathy towards suffering. So you're aware of suffering. I'm aware of your suffering. I'm feeling with your suffering. I'm wishing for you to have less suffering because you could have the first two steps. I'm aware you're suffering. I'm feeling with it. And you know what? It's a little overwhelming and I'm going to go that way right now or I'm a little bit busy. So there's different steps here that we look at. So I'm aware of it. I'm feeling with it. I want to, I, I, I'm leaning into it and I'm ready to engage with it. And what that fourth step of engagement then has relates to questions of altruism or, or action. And that gets very fertile too. What does it mean to have compassionate action? And this is a place where people, you know, it gets complicated, especially if you look at like political discourse in the New York Times in the last year, there's been a number of articles talking about is compassion a liberal bastion of getting involved with my personal ethics under the rubric of academia. Like there's been some really interesting <laughs> you know, political statements that compassion is getting involved in my private business and it's do-good or, you know, there's, so there's politis, politicization, which politic, I'm having trouble finding that word right now. You know what I'm getting at. So here's a more common down-to-earth one, not a New York Times one in classes. Compassion's well and good, but I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be a sucker. If I develop my compassion, if I choose to train in my compassion, I'm going to lose my capacity to judge, to have discernment about when it's appropriate to give and not give, and that will be a problem. Does that make sense as like a conceptual objection? So that would be one framework of, of, of compassion is, is conflated with naivete, of with, with an ability to discern. So one of the interesting things we talk about, one of the, the research studies, I, I, one of the things I enjoy about teaching at C-Care is we bring in science. So that's kind of fun, um, is in addition to meditation. So one of the studies I ask people about when that concern comes up, usually in the first class. So do you think that somebody who has a higher level of compassion is, you know, necessarily going to have less judgment. A lot of times people say, yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually pretty worried about that. So there is a study in the last year where they looked at people who were rated higher on, on the compassion measure. So we can get into the background of that, but I won't do that right now. They're, they're more, more compassionate people according to the scale of how we measure these things in psychological measures land. And they're, they're compared with people who rate lower in compassion, and the, the task at hand is to compare these two groups and see who's able to recognize actors coming in and telling lies. So, so would you guess the people who are more compassionate are going to be more able to recognize the liars or the people who are less compassionate are going to be more ready to recognize the liars? Oh, you guys are no fun. <laughs> 
That's, so they were more able, the people who rated higher in compassion were more able to recognize liars. The interesting part of the study is the narrative around it in the discussion section said that, well, the reason they're more able to recognize liars is their compassion. So people are lying to them all the time, so they're used to getting lied to, so they recognize it. Which is <laughs> kind of a funny explanation. I think an alternative one that would be worth considering is, <laughs> yeah, that's great, isn't that priceless? Gotta love when academia dig, digs into all these questions. Is that there's a clarity that comes with compassion, and, and what that has to do with, in terms of the practice we did today, when we are bringing to mind some sort of suffering we actually experience, receiving into it, using that to bridge into having compassion for other people. Maybe they have our own specific concern, or maybe it's a different one, but it's like it's knowing ourselves and being able to know other people. So we recognize when people are trying to do X, Y, or Z, and we can even have compassion for where they're coming from and recognize, you know, if they're trying to do something. Like those of us who are parents in the room, like a lot of compassion comes down to having to say a lot of no's. No question about it, right? I mean, does being a compassionate parent mean that you let your kid do whatever they want? That's absurd. I have a toddler, so it's like literally absurd because she wants to do the latest. is like put a blanket over her head and run as fast as she can in, you know, into walls, into whatever she can find or dive off of a couch. So, I mean, it's clear in that kind of context that compassion means discernment, means any number of different activities, or, you know, more complicated ones like in the workplace, if we're responsible for supervising or employing other people. And it doesn't, being a compassionate person in a work environment doesn't mean we say yes to people and, and enable work behaviors that aren't going to function or interpersonal dynamics that are not appropriate, but it's about the where we're coming from. So I'm just bringing some of this stuff up because I feel like there's a danger with compassion to just either get into like kumbaya mode and we're all like really nice and really good and it's really saccharine and not that helpful or to get really cognitive with it and let's get into, and this is you know, great stuff, and I invite you to connect with my colleagues at Stanford and hear all the neuroscience of compassion. That's very helpful. But what I think is special about this kind of opportunity is we can do the practice and think about our real questions, and then if this is something that's helpful, engage in the practice some more and see how that plays out. Yeah, so I guess the two pieces that I really want to point out about compassion are the relevance of what people are calling self-compassion, which is a super awkward term, I think. Like, self-compassion is definitely strange from a Buddhist ear, but it's the, the psychological term that we're using now, so it has to be engaged with for this relationship to self is really what it's talking about. And one of the things I just wanted to bring up in the context of a place where people are doing mindfulness and insight meditation is that self-compassion actually comes in from go because it has everything to do with the attitude with which you bring your mind back to the present. So even if you decide these visualizations we did today have not much interest for you, what I want to invite you to take away with is interest from this is interest in the tone with which you bring yourself back to the present moment when you notice your mind has gone off. Because I'm going to wager that many of us have a pretty unfriendly tone to ourselves. It's like, 
It's not like, oh, a gentle bringing your toddler back onto the path moment when you see your mind's wandered. It's like, schmuck, grab it and pull it back. Or, oh, can't meditate. Or this is a bad meditation session. Or, there, I'm, I'm just, maybe you're different, but I've been teaching meditation for a while and meditating for a while. And I really think this emotional tone and this intensity and self-deprecation that sneaks in under the rubric of meditation is not helpful. And I think that, you know, if, if I make one point tonight, I would ask you to consider the way we work with our minds, that tone of voice we use with ourselves, and, one, and looking into that, even within the context of a, a basic mindfulness practice. And that has everything to do with self-compassion, and that has everything to do with our capacity to be connected and compassionate to other people. Because if we're self-flagellating in our attitude with ourselves in our, in our spiritual meditation practice, you know, that just shows how deep it runs and, and how that's impacting interpersonal relationships as well. So I think what I'll, I've been talking a little bit for a while now. So I'm curious what's on people's minds. If you have any questions or comments about your practice as it stands and how it might relate to compassion or anything about the topics we're talking about. Yeah, please. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's relative and absolute compassion. So in relative, relative and absolute life, and we have to engage. I think what's helpful is relative practice is starting with the truth of where we are, which is in a dualistic perspective. And I think it's not that helpful to use the should of the absolute on our actual experience. I think that Buddhist practices become much more meaningful when we use them to get insight into our actual lived experience. And I think part of the way you hear me language things to maybe be a little hyperbolic is to point out and make fun of and make it okay to see the dynamics that we actually have in our minds. Not the ones we wish we had if we were fully lobotomized meditator Buddhas, but like actually like the stuff that's happening when we sit. Like we're tired. It's the end of the day. People are falling asleep. Like that's happening or people are agitated. And compassion has to relate to that. It can't just be some... Nobel Peace Prize moment, or I don't think it has much to do with our practice in daily life and with our meditation practice or our life as human beings. That's, that's how I feel about it. So I think I'm a Gen Xer from New Jersey. My tone is what it is. But I think my point is that like, we need to get real with ourselves and find a, a, pa- a way of engaging with our emotional lives with a real... Um, humor like and authenticity and seeing the darkness and the stuff that we'd rather not own and starting there you know Pema Chodron is amazing on all of this Sharon Salzberg if you want to look more in the insight realm it's starting with your actual lived emotional experience and Buddhist practice has to begin with that not with some idea we have about what a Buddha might be experiencing but the the premise is getting into our own experience and engaging with it in practice leads to recognizing the Buddhahood that's already there or gets you to Buddhahood, depending on which type of Buddhist framework. you. And I'd love to talk theology, but I'm not going to put that on you all tonight. Yeah. Other, other thoughts, please. Could you talk a little bit about mere enemy and Great. ego boundaries and overwhelm? Oh, those are such good ones. So I'll lay out the framework, not to be the final word, but... Near enemies, so some of the near enemies for compassion would be pity. I think pity or like this kind of, pity being the perspective of looking down at suffering. 
And compassion, I think, has everything to do about the I, either I thou with the other or, or I to I kind of moment. And I think it, it depends on, you can look at it equally in either of those ways. I think that the um, near misses with compassion also happen in, in our culture, in our context, in American Buddhism, and in terms of the desire to jump over our experience, to read about or have an idea about what wisdom, ultimate wisdom and compassion look like, and not want to engage with the actual stuff that we are experiencing moment to moment. So I think those are tempting enemies. And then overwhelm is a great one. And I think overwhelm has to do with opening up to suffering and then feeling flooded, emotional flooding. So one of the practices in this series of work is tonglen or giving and taking. And one of the common problems people have with that is I'll just describe the practice briefly. It's, it's a way of taking on suffering, transforming it, and sending out well-being, comfort, compassion. The kinds of troubles people have with that, I think, relate a lot to overwhelm. So it's, I can't take it on because the suffering is so heavy, it's crushing me. If I open myself to my suffering or the suffering of others, it will be a Pandora's box that I can't shut back down. And I think that the emotional flooding piece can be really well engaged with starting with receiving compassion into our own suffering. So that's, like in a way, you could look at the meditation I described tonight as a thousands-of-year-old analog to therapy. So you have your benefactor, your compassionate image, your safe, unconditional, compassionate, therapeutic figure, and then you can let all your crap come up and be surfaced and aired out in relation to this image. So like way before therapists existed, but you have this safe container to let things happen in. And I think that there's, you know, I've been teaching in trauma settings and PTSD unit now and emotional flooding, anger or numbness or the kind of thing. And and I think the ways of engaging with those are to be clear about where we are, to use, you know, to be if there's specific triggers or situations that we get overwhelmed with, but also to trust our defenses because they work really too well, actually, (laughs) you know. But um, I think those are near enemies and those are things. Here's, I was trying to explain this this weekend. I was teaching Tonglen on a retreat and I was trying to explain that if you start feeling crushed by the suffering, you're not tuning into the spaciousness or emptiness, to use a more Buddhist word, of the suffering. Like we engage with suffering, knowing that there's a big container and things appear, but they're empty. So if things start to feel too concrete and we're flooded and overwhelmed by the suffering and emotion, then a good antidote to that is to to tune into the transformative part or the spaciousness or open awareness practice. And likewise, if we're too attached to the bliss of our mindfulness meditation, it's good to ground ourselves in some of this like nitty-gritty, actual suffering of ourselves and others. So, yeah, just stuff to think about and work with. It's certainly no final answers up here. So I think in terms of the meditation practice, self-compassion, a really good place to just work with this receiving and do the receiving and, and notice all the stuff that comes up to block the receiving, the I'm not worthy, the person I'm trying to receive from isn't good enough, like all the different patterns we have, or maybe this other person would be better. These are the distraction analogs that go with compassion meditation, just as like mindfulness meditation has its own class, the sets of things. These are the common constellation around here, so around compassion meditation. 
I would say for self-compassion, receiving for a long time and noticing how that goes. And then this second step of joining the benefactor. So it's like an awkward movement at first that you're receiving from a compassionate image, but then you're joining the compassionate image and sending this to yourself. But it's kind of one of those things that you just can, you get used to. And it's very interesting to see that resistance. And I think it's warrants spending a long exploration of that. And that exploration can be really complemented by psychological work and being clear, you know, about what what are the areas that I'm blocked in because of the life experiences I've had. We all have karma or whatever way you want to put it, trauma or something. So what are the things that, what are those patterns and getting really curious about those and working with those in the context of practice and not rushing towards this need to extend it and really engaging methodologically with this. And in Tibetan traditions, like that receiving practice maps onto guru yoga, which is known as like the most profound practice of Tibetan Buddhism. So it's not like a prelim little lame practice before you get to the real deal later on. It's like that is the heart of Tibetan Buddhist practice is that receiving. And in Guru Yoga, it would be from a spiritual benefactor. So either some lineage figure or your teacher, and that would be who you'd be working with. But in this context, we go with our own cultural patterns. Does that help at all? Yeah, sure, behind you. I was, Jennifer and I were talking about this beforehand. I, here's what I'll say. I was, I was going to say, I don't think my core competences is defined in those kinds of ways. One of the things, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how I think about this in my present practice and teaching. So I'm working a lot with veterans, and a lot of them have PTSD and emotional numbing from their trauma. So they're not feeling a whole lot, and that's one of the major issues they have with relationship. They are numb, and they are, that impacts their marriages, their relationship with their children. And it's been very interesting to try and teach compassion practice to people who really can't access their emotional life. And I am totally confident that they can train in compassion. And yes, I do think that they get more access to their emotional life, but I think it's a mistake to conflate compassion with this like feeling. I think that there is a feeling that is a part of it, but it's a, it's a trap to think that we have to feel some specific way that I think that there's a lot that comes up, especially in the context of compassion training. So if you're just like you're, when you're training in mindfulness, a lot of what's going to happen in that process is seeing everything that keeps you from being present. So if you're training in compassion, you're going to see everything that keeps you from being compassionate. So including all of the, all kinds of emotions and thoughts. So I think that um, I'll roll with the answer from last week that it's, that compassion is not an emotional state, but it includes an affective landscape. Yeah. It sounded like um, that step two was, was that aspect, the empathy. Um, and I wanted to ask about, I, I missed step three. I heard um, step four of engagement. Um, well, could you talk a little bit more about step three? So the feeling with and then the leaning into so the third step is this leaning into, and then the fourth is a willingness to act in order to help. And that could take any way, shape, or form. So the leaning into. Because you could feel with, kind of empathy, and then lean away from, you know. And even in, like, one of the ways we talk about empathy a lot is, you know, early parenting, the, the mother-infant bond, and, and that kind of thing. And I was just having experiences 
today before I came here, my toddler was having like a real emotional meltdown. And I felt that moment of, you know, she was so frustrating and releasing all this emotion and I'm connecting to it. And I felt that moment happen in me of just wanting it to like, can't we just have quiet? Can't this just go away? Can't her dad take her inside? You know, so that was like the empathetic connection and then the like pushing but that's where the awareness, it's not really a linear thing because the awareness piece, which is supposed to be step one, can come back in then when you see yourself leaning away and then have the option in that moment to not put up a block between the uncomfortable experience from externally or internally. Does that make sense? So I, I like that forced part thing because people have questions about, well, how does empathy fit in with compassion? And what about action? Are we just all wasting our time thinking about compassion if we're not going to have more just, more social justice in the world, more at, more service, more doing? So the four pieces, I feel like, gets at the empathy. It gets at the awareness, which is essential. It gets at the empathy. It gets at the choice point, and it gets at the action point. But... In reality, I think it's way more complex. It's more like a all over the map than a, <laughs> you know, I, I think. But it, it's really helpful as a, a heuristic device kind of mode. Yes. But I like the idea of the, of the four steps because what I think for me is that I will see suffering and then I want to go fix it. <laughs> and so I skip two and three. And then I don't necessarily do the right thing because I hadn't done, hadn't connected with it, and, 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 and had the capacity to generate the right action as a result. So it's, it's, it's a nice discipline as well as, you know, as uh, leading to the right action. Yeah, it, it, it parses out the near enemy back to that of like compassion or just wanting to get rid of suffering because it's annoying like because my experience with my toddler and I was like she's melting down and screaming and I have 10 minutes between work and leaving for here and it was annoying you know so it's like is that compassion to try and make her feel better is that about her suffering or is that about you know and that's where this awareness piece like the mindfulness training is really imperative to have some sort of capacity for knowing our experience in the moment because otherwise there's no decision matrix there's just reacting you know in whichever way if we're a helper fixer or if we're a aversion person or you know some combination and different different points but that is such a helpful dynamic to point out because I think knowing that as a near enemy or a, a miss is really helpful because then if, we're, if we have an awareness practice, we can see that happening in the moment, the drive to fix rather than be with the messiness of suffering. I, I think that um, awareness practice and compassion is, can be so mutually beneficial because it brings the relationship element in, in high relief. You know, if you're doing awareness practice and then focusing on how is that playing out interpersonally in relationship, because compassion is everything to do with relationship to others and to self. So it's taking that awareness, skill, capacity, interest, and and just using it in a way. And then when you start getting interested in how am I being compassionate or not to myself and others, then that heightens the interest in awareness practice because then we see all the ways we've been unconscious and we want to do more with strengthening our capacity for awareness. So I, I definitely see them as not just mutually informing but imperative to deal with the different parts of our lives and ourselves. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be here with you all.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.